Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia. I'm here with Ben the Hunter, our fiction expert, and we're sitting across from Dominic Smith. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Um, Dominic, you've come in with The Electric Hotel, uh, a novel of um, love, obsession, and the birth of cinema. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, big, sure. Beautiful novel. Thank you. Um, yeah, so The Electric Hotel uh, is the story of a lost silent film. Um, and, and it's really about this film that has kind of ruined the lives of the famous French director uh, and the actress who made it. Uh, so for decades, the last remaining print of this film uh, has been locked inside a metal trunk under the director's bed, Claude Ballard, who's now um, living out his 80s uh, in a very rundown hotel in Hollywood. Um, but in the early 1960s, the film is uh, rediscovered and then it's restored when a young graduate student in film comes to interview Claude. And, and kind of throughout the, the, the process of restoring this film, we go back in time. And we kind of see Claude's career unfold. So we see him as an early concession agent for the Lumiere brothers who invented really the, the first form of cinema. Uh, we track his uh, somewhat doomed obsession with this French actress, Sabine Montrose. And then finally to his days building the studio uh, in Fort Lee, New Jersey, which is kind of America's first movie town and the place where he makes this kind of cinematic masterpiece that also unravels his life. Um, so the book is really about the, all those elements coming together. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a big and glorious <laughs> adventure um, that you go on as a reader. Um, what, what, what I wonder about is, is where... Um, where it began, uh, was it the research that led you to this story or, or did you want to tell the story of that obsession? Did that come to you yeah. in one big burst? It, or? Well, it was it was a little bit gradual. I mean, one of the things I realized with um, the last painting of Sarah DeVos is that my uh, I'm fascinated by the gaps and the silences of history. So with Sarah DeVos, it was all about tapping into the untold story of the women painters of the Dutch Golden Age. Um, with this book, uh, it was it was a different kind of gap. I really felt like there was this um, entire missing layer of cinematic history. So um, about five years ago, uh, the Library of Congress, which happens to have the biggest archive of silent films, put out this report that basically said, you know, 75% of all silent films are gone forever. Um, a lot of that has to do with the medium itself, celluloid nitrate, the first form of film, very highly flammable. Highly flammable, very prone to decay. Mm. So thousands of these films were just, you know, not only destroyed in studio fires, but just quietly dissolving in, in attics and basements and archives. So I just kept thinking about this idea of missing 75% of an art form. The silent era basically lasts 30 years. And I thought, well, if you put that in terms that I can really relate to as a writer, what would it be like if three quarters of all the books published in a 30-year time span were missing? surely there'd be the possibility uh, for there to be a lost masterpiece. And so this was the idea that really fueled the book, the idea of uh, a film uh, that we might never get to see uh, and trying to uncover that story. Um, this is a, a terrific book and there's, there's so many gorgeous elements to it. Um, we begin, well, we begin in the 60s, but then we go back in time to the very dawn of cinema. Yeah. And, what, and what I what I love about what you've done is you've illustrated for readers um, the the sheer magic of motion picture um, as, as a concept and how that was toured 
mm-hmm. around the world and yeah. um, uh, and how how that was thrust into people's worlds and it, and it ignited this this explosion of creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, how how did, how did you research this and how, how do you how did you go about trying to evoke this? Yeah, I mean, I really wanted to capture what it was like for those first audiences in the winter of 1895 in the basement of a hotel uh, watching this exhibition by the Lumiere brothers, these two French inventors uh, who'd had a lot of success in photography. Uh, And in reading the firsthand accounts of what this experience was like um, and, and what I've tried to bring into the book is, you know, th- those, those 10 reels, they were about 45 seconds each. They were very simple in terms of subject matter. We're talking about August Lumiere's baby eating breakfast. We're talking about, you know, a train coming into a station, workers at the end of a day leaving a factory. But these were absolutely mesmerizing for people because um, they had no visual or conceptual preparation for it. And so a train coming into a station or a horse coming towards you through the screen, people would literally duck and get on the floor mm-hmm. uh, or they would scream. Uh, and, and those early audiences were not only mesmerized because of that kind of you know, rapid movement, but also because every aspect of the frame really felt alive. So, you know, you would see uh, a woman and and four boys running out along a pier and jumping into the ocean. And it was as much the little details of like the little ripples on the waves or the the leaves moving in the background of a tree. Um, That was absolutely, uh, you know, totally mesmerizing to people because it felt like a transcript of real life. It looked like you were looking out a window onto that view. And so very quickly, the Lumiere brothers uh, hire two dozen concession agents to basically go out and evangelize this invention. And one of them, a guy named Mario Sestier, comes to Australia, and he makes Australia's very first film uh, in partnership with an Australian photographer. Um, not surprisingly, those early reels include things like the 1896 Melbourne Cup. Yes. Uh, and so there's, there's this kind of uh, moment in which cinema comes to Australia and Australians uh, get to see not only images of Europe, which was important, but because the cinematograph was, was both a camera and a projector, it meant that these traveling concession agents could make films as they traveled and show them back to the locals. And that was what was really kind of special and unusual, is that it was kind of this traveling, you know, roadshow where people got to see their own lives mm. reflected back These to sales them. agents almost in a way became the first documentarian. Yes, exactly. No, that's exactly right. And in your story, one of them is Claude, yep. who, who ends up becoming this maverick um, film uh, entrepreneur and, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, and creating this... Um, wild thing that becomes this film, The Electric Hotel. Yeah. Um, and there's a there's a morose and a touching love story woven in as well. Can you tell yeah. me a little bit about that? Touching, morose, a little obsessive. Very French. It's very French. There's, uh, you know, a, a line in the book about Claude's uh, Gallic uh, talent for suffering. Uh, when it comes to love. Um, and, and so really Claude Ballard, in a way, as this early concession agent, he goes on back to America and he starts gathering up this kind of filmmaking family. And, and the Australian connection is he discovers Chip Spaulding, who becomes this pioneering stuntman. He finds him at the uh, Royal Aquarium and Pleasure Grounds in Tamarama, which was a real place that hired daredevils. And so he collects Chip, he goes back to America, 
And in Fort Lee, New Jersey, this prototype of Hollywood, um, he sets about creating the studio. He has a lot of interesting innovations. There are things that we take for granted now that filmmakers at the time had to solve, like how do you shoot at night uh, if you don't have the right kind of lighting? And so they would use things like medical carbon arc lamps uh, to shoot at night, which would get very hot and all the actors hated it because it would be, you know, making them sweat. But basically he has this idea um, in a flash. I mean, he has this kind of... um, this idea that somehow he can set aside the burden of his infatuation with Sabine Montrose, who starred in a number of his films, by executing her kind of cinematic death uh, in film. And he, he, so he kind of sets about creating this um, somewhat gothic melodrama uh, that in a lot of ways has some of the early prototype elements of, of what would become later psychological horror film. I mean, he's really interested in the way that Sabine as a character will kind of, uh, she plays this consumptive widow who preys upon her hotel guests. Um, And, you know, it's kind of a zany film. There's a tiger in it and there's an airship in it and it's filmed on the Palisades across from Manhattan. So it's it's got this stunning kind of uh, location. But this film, while it is uh, very bold and innovative and has a huge impact, uh, ultimately it kind of, uh, it creates its own set of repercussions that come back to haunt uh, not only Claude as the director, but also Sabine as as the star. And, and uh, you know, she in some ways is, is a kind of early, quote-unquote, vamp figure uh, mm. in, in silent film. And people at that time didn't quite know how to wrestle with the kinds of roles that women could play in film and what their off-screen persona was like. And so there's some of that in there as well. And then we end up in the World War. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's so, a lot crammed into this. <laughs> so much going on. Yeah. Um, uh, how, do, how do you go about uh, res- researching this thing? Uh, yeah. uh, what what portion of your time is dedicated to research um, versus writing? Yeah. And I believe you have an academic career as well. Yeah, I teach in a creative writing program. Um, so... There's, there's a couple of phases. I mean, the first phase is, uh, is what I like to call the immersion phase. And it's kind of the most fun because I don't really know what the book is yet, but I'm just trying to swim around in a sea of primary sources. And so I get to go and do some really cool things. You know, I went to the Library of Congress. I visited this former nuclear bunker that now houses uh, America's kind of cinematic treasure. Uh, It was this bunker that was used by the U.S. Treasury Department in case of a Russian attack. It's where they stored Mm -hmm. uh, bank currency, so coins and notes. And now they actually store down in this vault uh, in in Virginia um, really the earliest and most fragile of these celluloid nitrate films, including things like, you know, the original camera negative uh, for uh, The Great Train Robbery, which is really the first uh, narrative film from 1903. So, you know, I got to visit places like that, an Italian film festival uh, that's done the biggest silent film festival for 30 years. Um, And really all I'm trying to do, in a way, with this book was have the experience of what it was like to see these films 90 or 100 years ago. And, And what I discovered... Uh, you know, in addition to the kind of archival research and spending lots of time watching films, is that, you know, the issue with silent film is that it kind of suffers from almost this visual stereotype where we think, when you conjure silent film, you think melodrama, slapstick. You also think kind of jittery, accelerated footage. And it turns out that a lot of that jitter 
is a result of a technical fault, mm-hmm. right? So hand-powered, hand-cranked cameras, hand-cranked projectors in the early days. So very inconsistent frame rates. And so going to places where these films were beautifully restored, shown at exactly the right frame rate, often with live musical accompaniment, uh, was, a, was a revelatory experience. And that, uh, while it was research, it was also kind of fueling the emotional heart of the novel because I wanted to bring people into that. And I wanted to kind of, I had my own kind of conversion experience <laughs> with silent film, and I wanted to give that to readers, hopefully. Absolutely. And then uh, the writing process, how, how did you go about um, bringing all of this research into a, a narrative story? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what, what, what I've learned with historical fiction uh, over the last few books is that it's kind of the 10% rule, which is that you, um, you acquire masses of information. Uh, and and I, I tend to organize the information as I go along. Uh, I'm not ashamed to confess that I use spreadsheets to organize a lot of the wow. stuff that I, I collect. But then you, you can't, I, I never want to re, you know, treat the reader like a tourist. What I want to do is I want to find the 10% of the details that actually kind of animate and reveal the time period in some interesting way. And so to get to that 10%, there's a lot of winnowing and a lot of throwing of stuff out. Uh, and, and I'm looking for those details uh, that, that reveal something. So, for example, uh, in, in 1910, there was Halley's Comet. And Halley's Comet had this huge cultural impact. And it just happened to be the summer the spring when my film the electric hotel is being made and so i wanted to find a way to bring the dramatic you know lives of my characters together but also show that there were things going on in the newspapers where you know uh modern scientists were talking about how there might be a cloud of cyanide gas uh with Halley's comet that would wipe out entire portions of the population and so there were all these like doomsday prophecies around this and so I love finding those little tidbits that are often forgotten and trying to find a way to weave them in and make them feel like, you know, they're part of, of this larger narrative for the, for the characters in play. Fantastic. Um, I want to ask a little bit about uh, uh, where you're going next. Um, you, you were born in Australia, you, um, but spent most of your life in the States yep. um, as an academic and as an author. Um, where are you teaching now and, and, and what are you writing next? Yeah, so <laughs> more excitingly. Uh, well, for the last 10 years, I've taught in a, in a graduate writing program uh, that's actually based in North Carolina, but it's uh, a low residency uh, master's of finance program. So basically, I go there 10 days during the semester. I meet with students. Uh, there's a kind of intensive residency. And then the rest of the time, I work with students remotely. Uh, and it's a great program. It's, it's very much uh, focused on kind of the idea of writing as an apprenticeship. Uh, and I really value that uh, a lot. Um, I'm, I'm early on in a new book project that um, takes place in the world of abandoned and semi-abandoned towns in Italy. Uh, and this was actually a little research spin-off when I was in Italy for this film festival. I got to travel around uh, and visit a lot of these places that, you know, in some cases... Uh, in the medieval period, had 3,000 people living in them. Uh, these gorgeous medieval hilltop towns, and now they have 10 or 12 people living in them. Mm. And I got really fascinated with the idea of not just abandonment, but who are the 10 or 12 people who stay, and why do they stay? Uh, and so I'm, I'm kind of 
bringing all these places together and actually fictionalizing one particular town uh, and trying to kind of build a novel um, out of that world currently. So that's out of, that's out the, of the new town project. through history. Yes. Uh, oh. Well, actually, there's going to be some history in the backstory, but but mostly I want to stay in the present time frame, and it's kind of writing about history in a different way. Um, I often jump around a lot in time, mm. and and this with this novel, I'm actually trying to stay put. Uh, in time and and focus on the history that's in the built environment and in people's memories. Uh, And so it's kind of a different approach uh, to what I've done before. That sounds fantastic. (laughs) Um, You've been really generous and um, we really thank you for making time and coming out here. Um, If you'll uh, 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 um, give us the pleasure, I've got some speed round questions for you. Okay, sure. Quick question, doesn't have to be a quick answer. All right. Um, here goes. Um, what was the last book you read and adored? Uh, Jane Gardam's Old Filth. Okay. <laughs> uh, where do you write and at what time of day? Uh, I write in, I have a, my own office uh, in, in the house. I used to have a studio behind it, but now it's in the, in the main house after we moved. And I write from about 7 in the morning till about 11 or noon uh, most days. Excellent. Um, do you have neat tricks that uh, keep you going? Things like word quotas or uh, caffeine is important. Caffeine, uh, caffeine, yeah, uh, and and also when I get stuck, uh, I often read poetry uh, as a way to kind of make contact with language and remind myself, you know, what it's like to feel excited about an image or a line. What poetry do you read? Uh, I'll just pick up like the Norton anthology of poetry oh, and flip to a, a, a poem and read it. And that's a way of kind of making contact. I love it. Um, what's the first thing you do um, after you've finished and delivered a book when it's done? Uh, there's usually a glass of wine. Um, and, uh, and, and, and then, you know, often when I've worked on a book for a long time, I've been reading in such a narrow kind of niche uh, that I go out on kind of a fiction bender and just read a bunch of fiction not related to the project and so that's that's always a real pleasure Mm. um do you have a trusted person that you have as a a first reader for your work i do i mean i'm really lucky i've got a a couple friends uh from the graduate program that i went to in writing and one of them is is a poet uh and i really trust his uh his kind of aesthetic and and his view on my work and then also i have an agent here in australia and in new york and they usually see some early pages, usually when I'm about page 100, I need a, a gut check from someone to tell me, like, is there anything here? Is this a disaster? Uh, and I need that feedback early on. And if, if it comes back like, no, keep going, uh, then that's good. Do you have a favorite children's book? Um, I mean, in a way, uh, so, so it's funny because both of my daughters grew up reading Harry Potter. And uh, they were absolutely obsessed with all the Harry Potter books. Um, and, and when my daughter, um, you know, kind of read the first one, she would kind of walk around the house and just read passages aloud. And it was, it was this moment where I saw her discovering literature and discovering writing. And so all those books are really special for me. I don't know. They're not just children's books, obviously. No. Um, but, but, they, but they are. They do kind of hold that place because of the way my kids related to them. They've converted you. Exactly. I love it. Yeah. Um, do you have a preferred snack or beverage to have at hand while you're reading and writing? 
So there's always coffee. I mean, co- so for a year I gave up caffeine and it nearly destroyed my writing life. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't want it's you to think to I'm, I'm <laughs> I don't want you to think I'm drinking pots of coffee a day, but I, there's two <laughs> cups of coffee in the morning during the writing process. And, and uh, I need that. And then there's, you know, yogurt and granola and fruit sometime in, in the middle. Um, not very interesting and pretty much the same thing every day. <laughs> Um, the nicest thing anyone's ever said about your work, something that stuck with you? Uh, someone just the other day said that um, they, we were talking about Tim Winton and I was talking about how much I admire Cloud Street as, as a book that kind of delivers this this beautiful portrait of um, working class Australia, you know, war, pre-World War II and post-World War II and, and his kind of love of, of vernacular and, and the ability to, to make poetry out of it. And, and someone said that some aspect of my work reminded them of Tim Winton, and I thought that was a very high compliment. That's nice. <laughs> and is there uh, one bit of advice that stuck with you or one bit of advice that you give other writers? Yeah, I mean, often I, you know, because I teach in a, in a writing program, uh, I, I, I often remind uh, students of writing that, you know, this is, this is a lifelong apprenticeship. You don't ever really arrive. You want to approach the work in a way where you just, uh, you're set up to keep doing it and you want to get better at it. Uh, and part of that is you have to solve practical things like how do I make a livelihood so that I can also um, sustain a career in fiction writing with all of its ups and downs. So that's that's actually a really important conversation, I think, for, for writers to have. And, uh, and and so that's often a piece of advice that, that I give from my own experience. Sage-wise. <laughs> Dominic, thank you very much for making the time to come out today sure. and, and chat with us. I've really enjoyed it. And um, I hope lots of people find this book because it's it's big and it's gorgeous and I loved it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You can buy your copy of The Electric Hotel and all of Dominic Smith's books from booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget, for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.